HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring interactions from drug studies in a laboratory. If this effect is as big as he's saying, somebody should have discovered this long before he did. To global wisdom on avoiding hangovers. Beber cerveza antes de tomar vino no previene los síntomas. Beer before wine, you're going to be fine. Wine before beer, you're going to be queer. To the novel recipes developed by an Indian American family deep in the heart of Texas. And then my mom's sort of coming to America and learning that uh, white parents love to melt cheese on things to get their kids to eat it. She was like, this is genius. <laughs> Be sure to subscribe to Meat in 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Matt Sartwell from New York City's cookbook mecca, Kitchen Arts and Letters. Today's episode, we're going to talk to Matt about the value of cookbook bookstores, the latest cookbook must-haves. And we'll get a Kitchen Arts and Letters Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to season five and drum roll to a big milestone. This is episode 50. We wanted to celebrate this achievement with our listeners and reflect on the wonderful parade of distinguished and diverse guests we've had on the show. There are many more to come this season, so we hope you keep listening, learning, and enjoying the conversations. If you haven't listened to all 50, have a search back for ones you might have missed. Some memorable conversations include Julia Child Award winners, Danny Meyer, Mary Sue Milliken, and Susan Feniger, food writing luminaries like John T. Edge and Dory Greenspan, and all-around rock stars like Samin Nosrat. And most recently, Julia's good friend and culinary icon, Chef Jacques Pepin. Okay, Milestone recognized it's time to launch the conversation with our inspiration from Julia. It was one now very famous cookbook that changed Julia's life, gave her a career, and even changed the fabric of American life. Mastering the Art of French Cooking was that rare, groundbreaking book that remains a gold standard, still delighting new readers and cooks today. That joy of discovery and learning from a cookbook was something Julia treasured, and a medium that to some extent Julia helped transform. She created a model for how a printed cookbook could help guide and teach you through careful recipe organization and step-by-step instructions. It's safe to say that book has heavily influenced the cookbooks that have come after it. 
The internet age has not been super kind to bookstores. It's been kinder to the book industry as a whole and to authors, as readers are able to discover and buy books with an ease that was not before possible. But it also moved people away from bricks and mortar sellers. All over the country and the world, both large chain bookstores and independent bookshops disappeared, including that rare breed of specialist devoted to cookbooks. The few survivors are true treasures worthy of our patronage. Joining us today is the man in charge of one of the most legendary bookstores focused on all things food and drink. Matt Hartwell is managing partner of Kitchen Arts and Letters in New York City's Upper East Side. Founded by James Beard Hall of Fame member Knack Waxman in 1983, it became the go-to place to find the most important books on food and discover yet-to-be-discovered gems. Anybody, including Julia Child and James Beard, who consider themselves a serious foodie, paid a visit, and left with a new pile of reading. Matt has only been there for 25 years and serves as a store generalist. He's previously been a book editor and chaired the book committee for the James Beard Awards. He's also a dedicated home cook and baker. It's always a treat to talk to a cookbook expert. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you very much for having me. So tell us how Kitchen Arts and Letters is unlike any other cookbook seller and kind of unlike any other bookstore. Well, I think any cookbook store and any bookstore that stays open for a long time begins by fitting into their community. So we are very much a New York store. Uh, We are responsive to the fact that we're in one of the greatest cities in the world and and we see people coming to us from all over the world. So we are not uh, focused solely on on New York foods, but we're interested in bringing in uh, material from all over the world. We do a lot of importing. We want you to walk into our store and see things there that you have not seen anywhere before whether they're older books, whether they're things that we've brought in from Singapore or Australia or Italy or Spain or France or Germany or England or Peru or Brazil. Um, We want to be a nexus in which people come and find things that they had always hoped existed, but they've never been able to turn up elsewhere. Now, uh, every great cookbook store, and there are others in, in the United States that I'm you know, sort of proud to consider colleagues, fits into their community in some ways. But I think New York is, uh, by virtue of, of being uh, a huge restaurant town and an incredibly diverse place, uh, a remarkable uh, center for people to come and, and look for things. So last week, uh, I got a a tweet from a customer of ours who'd come in from Santiago, Chile, and picked up uh, a dozen different books that we'd sent to him. And we uh, we ship to, to customers all over the world because we are truly in an international uh, crossroads here. Um, we are also the kind of place where you can come in and sit down and ask a question about a book and, and very likely encounter somebody who's who spent time with it, uh, who's cooked from it. I mean, there's no way, we have 12 to 13,000 titles in stock. So there's no way I could pretend to you that I and my staff have cooked from all of them. But we we do spend a lot of time with books when they come in and we start to rec- try to recognize their character and learn who they're for. Are they uh, for someone who's just getting started in a, in a particular area? Are they books that are targeted towards somebody who has already gone down the rabbit hole and wants to find new things about, say, fermentation or about baking or about uh, the cuisine of, of Thailand, uh, we really pour a lot of effort into being able to talk about the books that way. And publishers, bless them, you know, we depend on them, but they're not always completely bright when it comes to how they pitch books. And uh, if you spend a lot of time reading the copy that publishers put on books, you're going to find out that almost every book promises to be all things to all people. And we don't really believe that that's possible, that a book is equally satisfying for a beginner and an experienced cook. So we're going to try and and put books on a continuum that helps our customers know how they might put them to use. Yeah, no, I was going to ask you that too, because I thought that's a great example of 
of New York. Like you're very much a bookstore that is has has a New York character, but then also represents New York as this global crossroads, both in terms of you know the the many varied cultures from around the world that are represented as resident in New York, and then the fact that basically New York is is a destination for people for various reasons for tourism and business the world over. So tell us more about who your core customers tend to be. From a dollar standpoint, our estimate is that about 70% of our revenue comes from people who make their living off food. They can be restaurant cooks and chefs, they can be caterers, they can be food journalists, they can um, work for large uh, international food corporations, uh, or they could be startup entrepreneurs or um, farmers who are getting a CSA off the ground. Those customers need us to be nimble, to have uh, a wide variety of stock and to know that stock well. They, um, they don't tend to be the people who are following the really close trend and they're looking often for books with a tried and true track record. So we're trying to offer them a balance of books that have become classics like Mastering the Art of French Cooking or um, a book um, that is written by some incredibly passionate person who is not addressing a mass market, somebody who really could never break out into being a bestseller in any kind of national chain. But for our customers, uh, that really focused book on fermentation, for example, or making uh you know distillation or uh even if it's just uh the history of british meat pies um we try to have those kinds of things that people can find uh, in the store and maybe they never knew they really needed it but once they see it the light goes on and so is that also kind of, I was going to ask you how the shop has sort of fared, because obviously it's been around before the internet age and has survived through it. Is that one of the ways that you're, you're basically, you're not competing in terms of what you stock or even what you want people to come in to buy with the, the major mass market booksellers? Well, we, we carry a lot of things that you could find easily at, you know, at barnesandnoble.com or at amazon.com. I mean, our best-selling book last year was Rene Redzepi's uh, and David Zilber's uh, Noma Guide to Fermentation, uh, which I know was you know popular all over the country. Um, so we can sell a book, a specialized, wonderful book like that, really well. But we we want to enrich the background in which you find that book with a lot of other books that are that are harder to find. Either they've come from uh, a small press. They've come from out of the country, maybe they're out of print, and we happen to have stockpiled some copies, and we know that they continue to be important resources. Um, We don't go deep into bright, shining trends of the moment. Uh, I think I've sold, so far this year, two books on Instant Pot, and there are, you know, plenty of bestseller lists will tell you that that's all that people are buying. Uh, um, but we're happy to have a neighborhood customer walk in and ask a question. I mean, we sell lots of home baking books. I mean, there's a new made a heater book that came out about two weeks ago, sort of a best of collection called happiness is baking. We sell that really well. Stella parks came in, uh, last week and signed a bunch of copies of, uh, of her book brave tart. And we shipped out signed copies all over the country. Um, we're happy and, and delighted to be those to see those kinds of customers because that's who most of us in the store are. But we also have to be able to turn on a dime and help that person who comes in and say, I'm interested in, uh, in the, the, the way in which 17th century uh, French bakers were regulated by the, uh, by the French government. And we can go with them and spend time with them and find those books. And if we don't have the resource in the store, we can start pointing them towards other things. And that's that kind of duality that we really uh, sort of makes the day interesting and exciting for us. Yeah. So maybe tell how is the store organized or subdivided? Is it is it um, is it very similar to most bookstores' cookbook sections, or do you do it in a different way? Uh, largely, it's by subject. Uh, we have uh, a large section on on food history, arranged in both chronologically and regionally. Um, there are some uh, 
uh, times and places where there are lots of works of food history and others where we struggle to find material. So a big American section, a big British section, a smaller French section, and then kind of the rest of the world is uh, often represented by only about four or five books. Uh, we try to supplement that with imports from, uh, from different places in the world. So we have a book from Venezuela in Spanish on the history of Venezuelan food. We have uh, books from France on uh, 13th century household management. Um, and so we, we add to that, um, you know, sections on, uh, our largest overall section is the international and ethnic section, which is arranged alphabetically by country or ethnic group. And that'll include everything from, uh, a book on the cooking of the Jews of Bukhara and Central Asia to, uh, books that we bring in on, uh, from Singapore on the different ethnic groups there. So we're always trying to enrich that tapestry. And I know when I might order, say, a book on the food of uh, Jews in Central Asia, that we're not going to sell 25 copies of those the way that we might have uh, of a signed edition of Braveheart. But when somebody comes in and finds that, the light's going to go on for them, and they're going to say, these are my people. <laughs> and I was going to ask you more about chefs. And would you say our chefs and your chef customers, and obviously New York is a very um, food and restaurant heavy um, center, are, are chef customers different than, than the majority of your other uh, cookbook buying customers? They are often interested in very different things out of a book than, say, a home cook. Uh, chefs in my experience, don't really follow other people's recipes. Um, you know, if, uh, if someone were to come in and, and pick up, uh, say, the latest book from, uh, from France, they're not going to go back to their restaurant and execute, um, you know, Yannick Aleno's uh, appetizer and serve it to their customer. They're not, you know, that's just not the way restaurant chefs work. They are going to look at that book and say, it's amazing what he's doing there and the flavors that he's putting together on the plate. But, you know, I can't reliably get those, you know, that particular olive. And I can't even get that fish he's using. But what if I did this and I took it, I used shrimp instead and I took the technique he's using and suddenly the wheels are turning in their head and they're engaged and the book has already delivered for them exactly what they need without their ever having looked at anything more than the ingredient list. And chef books, books that are designed to, to speak to chefs, uh, often have uh, very different content than books that are designed for home cooks. Restaurant books often have fairly sketchy recipes in acknowledgement that most of the time, the person who's actually buying the book uh, and intending to use anything from it is going to know how to execute things once they see the basic outline of the recipe. So they don't have really detailed instructions on, uh, on, you know, that doesn't explain how to truss a chicken or how to, uh, how to bone a fish. Yeah, no, but I think also what you just, just described, I would argue is the majority of people, whether home cooks or chefs is that the books are inspiration. And that their inspiration either to get you in the kitchen and try things or in the case of chefs, their inspiration to learn from others and then apply it to your skills. I mean, do you kind of think of that, that that's a big picture, what Kitchen Arts and Letters is representing as a, as a bookseller? Well, we, we definitely want people to feel like they're the place they can come and connect to a much wider world. And there, I mean, there are people who follow recipes step by step and incredibly closely. And we have, you know, we have books for those people we know what the good choices are for people for whom uh, a really detailed, precise recipe is, is crucial to their happiness in the kitchen. But we tend to see uh, the people who are more interested in the excitement of something fresh and new, um, the people who are feeling adventurous, the people who are not feeling like their needs are being met by um, either a neighborhood bookstore or uh, an, a national chain retailer, that is really focused on sort of, um, you know, the hot topic uh, issues of the moment. We want people to feel like they can come in and, and get a book on the food of West Africa or uh, a beautiful new book just came out from University of Texas Press called Mercado 
on the food found in different markets around Mexico. And it's regionally organized. It's beautifully photographed. And it gives you a tremendous sense of the geography of Mexico and how diverse the cuisines are. And it's, it's big. It's $60. It takes up a lot of counter space. It's wildly impractical in certain senses. But at the same time, if it, you open it up and you're looking at it and you're thinking, you know, I could do that. I could put that on the table and it would be unlike something I've ever done before, but I want to cook, then the book has done something sort of extra magical and, uh, and it makes it a lot more valuable. I think that's such a great description of how a cookbook can be magical and the process of discovery and that, that it's also in a book, you can travel the world and break boundaries. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, I, I'm sort of famous for bitching on Twitter a lot about uh, about how predictable publishers' seasonal lists are and um, and how many trends get followed. And to a certain degree, you know, publishers have to make money. They have to have the book that sort of sells a hundred thousand copies so that they can afford to take risks on on more unusual books. But there are huge categories of things where we just don't have anything, and it's. I mean, I could sort of, you know, make up things off the top of my head of books that don't exist. And there are always people who are excited to hear about it. So, you know, recently I said, you know, why don't we have any books on the breads of Central America? Um, And, you know, I don't even know how diverse the breads of Central America are because it is sort of an unplumbed subject in English. But instead of getting, you know, book number 922 on... um, ketogenic vegan instant pot recipes i'd rather see publishers taking a risk to to open the world up well that's interesting that you said that because one of the things i want to ask you about is and and i actually you probably have a better perspective than i do but certainly the number of cookbooks or food related subject matter books published in the u.s has just exploded in the last decade i'm not quite sure if there's been a equivalent explosion worldwide but from your chair given that we still don't have a good central american bread book in english at least is has that been a good thing or or has it actually not accomplished as much as we might think it has i don't i don't know the that the explosion in the number of books has crowded out the possibility that wonderful things emerge um you know uh Publishing has consolidated at the same time that the number of books has expanded and the number of decision makers on what reaches the, the public has probably not gotten any larger. Um, I would hope that there would continue always to be room for remarkable books to happen, and they, they do happen. I mean, uh, last year, uh, Echo Press brought out Anissa Halu's book Feast, which is a a panoramic look at the food of the Islamic world. That was an amazing, uh, amazing book that I think did a lot to connect dots that maybe certainly many of us here in the United States, certainly me, didn't know could be connected. Um, and and I think that work like that will continue to come along. Um, it's... <laughs> I have a lot of conflicting feelings about about the abundance of books. Um, there is a rapid pursuit of of trends, and and suddenly you see sort of a you know a, a category drowning in books um, that you know maybe didn't really deserve all that attention. I think the other thing that has happened uh, as books have proliferated and that is problematic for the types of books that I love is that the abundance of photographs that people see on the internet in places like Instagram and and Facebook and it's not that these outlets are are villains they've just they've changed the whole terrain is that there are a lot of people who will not look at a book that does not have pictures um i t- i see it with mastering the art of french cooking even though it has some lovely illustrations that make things very explicit there is a conception that some people have that they can't make it if they don't know what it looks like. Um, and it's, 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 although I'll put a plug in that you can certainly Google things on the internet and see most of Julia's dishes made by someone even on Instagram. Absolutely. I mean, it's not like it's impossible to find that information. 
Um, but I think uh, people have become so accustomed to to photographic stimuli that they can't make a decision about what they want to do without that in front of them. So given the choice between a book with pictures and a book without, there are a lot of people who who will always choose the pictures and, and people who will just flat out refuse to open a book um, if they're told that it doesn't have the photograph. And so that crosses a whole lot of, uh, of really amazing, wonderful books off their list. I mean, not only Mastering the Art of French Cooking, but Marcella Hazan's Essentials of Classic Italian Cooking and Paula Wolfert's uh, Couscous and Other Good Foods of Morocco. And I mean, you could make a giant, amazing list of, of important, useful, powerful books without photographs um, that people are leaving behind. So when something comes along like Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat that Samin Nasrat wrote, and it has no photographs, that does my heart good. I mean, I'm, there are a lot of reasons I'm excited to see that book succeed. Um, but the fact that it is a, a book without photographs and it's drawing in people who might otherwise think they can't cook without a photo is, I hope, a little bit of pushback against a, a sad trend. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to be right back to talk to Matt Moore about some of his favorite cookbooks and latest recommendations, even though you've already gotten some very enticing tips of um, wonderful books. So stay with us and we'll be back with a lot more. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Kitchen Arts and Letters managing partner, Matt Sarwell. We've been talking about the rare breed of dedicated specialist book, cookbook sellers, and now we're going to go a bit deeper and, and stay a bit more book-focused to take advantage of the resident wisdom we have in the studio today. So you, you've already mentioned a lot of books that you love or that have impressed you. Are there, are there certain books um, either that you've already mentioned or, or that we haven't talked about yet that you, you just find yourself recommending um, lately a lot? Or is it because you have such a sort of rarefied customers or interested customer in specific areas that it's all over the map? Well, I mean, people often come in and ask what my favorite cookbooks are, and, and I sort of have to decide whether I'm talking about the, uh, the book of the moment, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing because I love when something new and exciting comes in, or if it's something that I've loved for a long time. Uh, um, the things that have been appearing recently, I'm really intrigued by a a book called Roughage by Abra Barons, who's a chef farmer from Michigan who's done a terrific new work on vegetables. It's not a vegetarian book. It has some meat and fish and chicken in it, but it's, it's, it's smart, it's flavorful. Um, it offers information for the kind of cook who, who likes to cook more by seat of the pants than by formal recipe, but the recipes inside are by themselves exciting and fun um that's been out about two three weeks and i think it's off to a great start and i expect to be selling that uh pretty steadily throughout the year um from last year i'm still cooking very happily from a book called season by nick sharma which has just been um, a lot of fun for me um it's introduced me to ingredients that i hadn't used before like coconut vinegar that have uh, some amazing bursts of flavor, and I've really, uh, really been happy to go back to that again and again. I um, long term, you know, if somebody comes in and says, "What's your favorite book on the store?" 
There's a book called Cucina Fresca by Vienna Laplace and Evan Kleiman that was published in 1985. It's still in print. It's simple Italian food meant to be served colder room temperature. Um, so it's terrific for parties. Uh, it's a great make-ahead book if you prefer to do a lot of weekend cooking and then pull things out of the refrigerator. Um, I'm at the point with that book where I often don't follow the recipes so much as pull the book out, flip through it, and I know what to do with what's in the refrigerator. Uh, it's uh, We've become so... Uh, <laughs> the book and I have become, have come to know each other so well that uh, just seeing you know two or three ingredients on a page, and I think to myself, "Aha! Of course, I know how to do that." Um, and that is often the way I cook more seat of the pants than than really formal recipe. Well, I was going to ask you, and I think you just gave an example of that. And I love that it's an Evan Kleiman book since she's maybe maybe almost the godmother of, of food radio and food podcasts. Um, if you don't know Evan Kleiman, she uh, hosts a, a show on, on um, a public radio station, um, I'm blanking, at KCRW in Los Angeles called Good Food, um, which is a great show. I, we were talking about the same person, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. This was, okay. Good. Suddenly, I was like, "Oh my God, there could be two," because um, I don't know that book actually. So I'm, I, I need to. And so on that way, I was going to ask you: Are there certain gold standard books that you, if someone says, because I think your shop is a good place for this, I've decided to devote myself either to home cooking or I'm just going to culinary school and I really need to build out my library and my knowledge. Is there kind of a starter pack of gold standards or or must-have books that you would kind of get someone to stock up on? Well, it depends a little bit on the way in which people cook and how they like to learn. Uh, our best-selling book in the whole history of the store uh, is Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking, which is not a cookbook, but it's a book that explains how ingredients work, how they behave when egg whites are whipped or when uh, meat proteins are exposed to heat. And it's, it's an accessible book. You don't need to have gotten uh, a B in high school chemistry to understand it, because I can understand it and I struggled for a C. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's useful and it, it is, uh, it's a reference book. You don't read it cover to cover. You, you tackle it when, when something's a problem. Now, there are people for whom that is absolutely you know, candy to be able to, to find those kinds of answers. And there are other people who just want to roll up their sleeves and, and, and have a recipe that works. Um, and so we're off into completely different territory there with, you know, it could be anything from Melissa Clark's dinner, changing the game. Um, I, uh, I really like to recommend essentials of classic Italian cooking, the Hazan, uh, for somebody who's a motivated cook, somebody who wants to learn. Marcella is a, um, is kind of exacting and bossy. But I think that's a good thing if you're interested in getting to know a cuisine by its popular standards or it's, you know, what, what somebody who grew up with it would think of as, as an essential. Um, you know, we, we always try to offer people a choice of things when they ask questions. So we, we go off in different directions depending on how we hear from them. But we often recommend the Zuni Cafe book by Judy Rogers. Again, it's a careful, painstaking book for somebody who's who's motivated. I mean, you know, her famous roast chicken recipe takes, I think, three and a half pages to cover. Um, there are lots of roast chicken recipes that might take two paragraphs. Um, I personally like Kenji Lopez-Alt's uh, The Food Lab. Again, I like that explanation. I like the why, because after I've made a recipe once or twice, I'm probably going to run off in a different direction with it. But I want to know why I've been told that something should rest for 15 minutes before it goes into the oven or why uh, it makes more sense to immerse it in a brine than to salt the outside. And Kenji is great for explaining those kinds of uh, recipe instructions. If somebody's just more interested in getting good food on the table, there's a lovely book by Deborah Madison called Vegetable Soups from Deborah Madison's Kitchen. It's the only soup book I own. It's seasonal, it's fresh, the flavors are bright, it's not complicated to work with. It happens to be vegetarian. Um, if you're not vegetarian, it's easy enough to put some chicken breast or some salt pork or some bacon into a, into most of the soups and they work out just fine. Um, but 
most of our recommendations come from taking time with people and finding out, you know, are they adventurous in their sense of flavor? Do they really like comfort food? Do they need to have dinner on the table in 20 minutes or do they have time to relax with it and run with it? Well, I love that list because you, you, you've kind of covered the gamut from, you know, people who are no longer with us to people who have become who are more recently uh, popular writers. But I would argue that that list is not a list that you're going to find on the, you know, top 10 cookbooks of even going back five years from now of any of the sort of mainstream digital foodie websites. It's a much more um, thoughtful and... Um, kind of I think both about the writing and devoid of trend so thank you for those oh sure I mean those, you know talking about books and and trading stories you know kitchen war stories back and forth that's a lot of what we we love to do in the store is you know you hand somebody a book and they look at it and say oh you know I had a book like that and I didn't like it and and you know sometimes you learn more from somebody about what hasn't worked out for them in their past than what than what has but those kinds of exchanges are what makes the whole thing exciting. Okay, so we, we mentioned before about Kitchen Arts and Letters having, you know, an interest and a bit more of a specialty than, than, than many bookstores in food history. And so I, I thought we have to talk about what's in the basement. So what is in the basement? <laughs> uh, the basement. The basement has a legendary um, mystique that I don't know is, um, is quite definable. Um, the best way I can say is that we do keep a lot of reference copies of, uh, of, of important books, books that are no longer in print. Um, and they can be you know, relatively recent things. They can be books that are 20 years old, 50 years old, uh, 100 years old. Um, Nock is really responsible for most of the treasures in the basement. He runs our out-of-print business. He uh, was always interested in that from the moment that the store opened. And he's kept pouring uh, a, a lot of his best efforts into that over the years. Um, uh, at various points, I know he's tried to have uh, copies of, say, every edition of uh, of Joy of Cooking since uh, since it was published. I know we don't have any copies of the true first edition on hand at the moment, but I think pretty much everything else. Um, we have rare copies of books by chefs like... Michel Brass in France, or Rene Redzepi from Copenhagen. Um, and those things are available uh, most of the time for people to consult. Uh, we don't lock them away in the basement just on the assumption that they're going to get better with age. Um, we, you know, we want people to come to be able to come to us and say, hey, I know this isn't for sale, but I'd like to take a look at it. I'd like to consult it. So it's not quite as... Um, uh, ferociously guarded as it, as as I think some stories might make it seem. Um, we have you know uh, books that I think are completely off the radar of the average. <clears throat> I beg your pardon, off the radar of the average American uh, reader these days, but which, which are delights and fun. Knock has a real um, affection for the early works of a writer named Sheila Hibben, who was a correspondent for the New Yorker, uh, writing a lot back in the 30s. Um, so there are all kinds of funny little things down there like that. Um, and, you know, and there are also just a lot of copies of, of books that we're currently selling very nicely. So, so it's, not, it's not exactly a lending library, but it's kind of both a reference thing. But it, it sounds like it's also not – it's not a static old dusty basement in the stuff that things do move in and out. And if you notice that you no longer – so you might sell a first edition Joy of Cooking for someone who's looking for it. And then you'd look for another time to – if you find a great copy of it to replace it again. Yes. Nock has a, has a really active uh, list of things that he's buying and selling and, and trading. And uh, we put – collections together for people. Knox supplies uh, a number of uh, major libraries around the country, university and private collections. Um, so yes, it's, it's, it's not static. Uh, it is probably dusty. I can't lie about that. It's a basement. Um, but it's not, um, it's not like a vault uh, where nobody ever gets 
to look at things. The books are there because they're books and people want to read them and we try to do our best to help people read them. So we were recently talking about um, out-of-print books going digital. In episode 47, we had one of the founders of uh, Cookbook subscription. Description service, that's not easy to say, which is called cookbook.com. And I was just kind of curious as your take, like they're working kind of another end of what's going on and through the basement of Kitchen Arts and Letters. And it, it, do you sort of see them as different things or complementary? I mean, I think what's great about what they're doing is just like you were recommending and what you guys still trade in are there's a lot of amazing books, often without photographs, that are out of print. And then that makes them much harder for people to acquire. So they've gone about it in sort of a digital way. But obviously, the digital experience is very different than the the physical experience for the books. I was just curious what your sort of take or perspective on that is. There's been a, a number of people who have been making efforts to uh, to reproduce and facsimile out of print books uh, in print form or to put them online. And I think that's all to the good. Um, I don't think there's any benefit to having uh, things like that locked away uh, so that somebody who's doing research or scholarship or somebody who's just had somebody sort of tell them a magical story about, about cooking from a book that's out of print. I mean, nobody's better off if that, if that material is hard to find. Um, but physical books are, are different than electronic books, and people use them differently. Um, from time to time, I try to cook... Uh, from a recipe that I found online or somebody's emailed to me. And I'm not comfortable with it. I have this four or five, six hundred dollar device on my counter. And I'm messy uh, and uh, <laughs> sloppy in the kitchen. And I'm always really nervous about that. And um, yes, it's possible to have a four or five or six hundred dollar uh, older book. But for the most part, books uh books survive encounters with uh with messy messy things better than electronic equipment does so um i like that i i find it easier to browse a physical book than an electronic book um i like the tactile experience of of turning pages um that's something that's never gotten old for me and and you know in all the years that i've worked in the book business um but you know, we have this vast culinary heritage, parts of which have be, remained obscure because it's been economically inefficient for uh, certain older books to be reproduced, and and electronic efforts can alter that and bring things forward that might otherwise be forgotten. Well, that that made me think. I wanted to ask you. I saw um, Chef Virginia Willis talking about her um, her her mentor, um, the Doyen of um, Southern cooking, whose name is escaping me, <laughs> had the, Naomi, not Naomi Dupre. Um, Natalie Dupre. Thank you, Natalie Dupre. And um, she was saying that Natalie likes to keep her books pristine and she has a good library. But, you know, if you were working in the kitchen, you would photocopy the recipe and bring it in. Are you, which, which side of the aisle do, do, you, do you like your cook, cookbooks to look um, kitchen worn or do you keep them pristine and you're, you're photocopying recipes for the for the countertop? Uh, well, whatever I would like, my books look like they've been used. Um, I, uh, I accepted a long time ago that that's, that that's the case. Um, you know, I, uh, I grew up, my mom used to mark in her books. Uh, I can still remember uh, a cookie recipe from a Betty Crocker cookbook that she had scrawled no taste across uh, <laughs> very firmly. I, I like that record of engagement and use. And I know that there are people who are horrified by that. And, and yes, it does decay and degrade the books a lot faster than might otherwise be the case. But I like the evidence of, uh, of having cooked from it. Because sometimes I'll flip through a book and, and see a recipe and realize I must have cooked from it. Um, and the fact that it's stained and the pages are rumpled from having been wet gets me to stop and think and to recall. And usually with that comes context you know who did i make it for how long ago did i make it who you know why was i cooking for that person and i like all those cues that come from a from a used book yeah it's like a a memory map on on paper yeah so i want go ahead no i was just gonna say it's it's like i have also i have recipe cards from my mother and my grandmother that are stained 
Um, and it's that same thing. And it feels, you know, when I've pulled them out and, and referred to them for uh, mostly for holiday things and like that, it, it's, you know, I enjoy that connection. I, I think it's, it's part of enhancing the, the making of the food and, and enjoying it. So I wanted to ask you before we uh, take a break and, and get um, a Julia moment in, um, given that you, you've been at the bookstore for 25 years, which is quite a tenure, um, even for a bookstore to survive that long is quite an accomplishment. Do you see the shop really being very much the same right into the future? Or do you see it evolving in some ways or is it just impossible to predict? Well, we've continued to evolve. I mean, we have a... a a website now we sell a lot of books through kitchenartsandletters.com um, it allows us to to take a more specialized book and and run with it we had an amazing experience this year with a uh, a book that we imported from naples on the technological aspects of neapolitan pizza and how it's made it's it's in english it's really well translated which is not always the case with with mm. books that are published in English abroad, but in this case, the translation is terrific. Um, and it has, you know, sections on hydration and the rheological properties of wheat varieties. And it is, you know, it is really a pizza geek's book only. And, and being able to reach a national and an international audience with that through the website has been important to keeping us there. But in terms of, of how we think about the types of books that we're interested in alerting our customers to, I don't think that's going to change. You know, we're just not going to ever chase um, the huge mass market. Uh, we are always going to be the books for people who are, you know, who are cooking, who, who buy more than one cookbook a year. Fair enough. All right, folks, are you still a fan of browsing in a physical bookstore? Do you wish there were more specialist cookbook shops like Kitchen Arts and Letters? Have you discovered a new one that you love? Let us know. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org. After the break, Matt's going to share a Kitchen Arts and Letters Julia moment. Stay with us to find out. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Patrick Martins. I'm Brandon Hoy. And I'm Emily Pearson. Together, we host The Main Course OG, where we cover food news and culture. Browse episodes of The Main Course OG wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Matt, you, you decided you were going to share, it's, it's not exactly a personal one, but a kind of overall kitchen arts and letters uh, Julia moment. So what is it? Well, I think this, this is a story that, uh, that Nock tells. Uh, it happened uh, a few, just a few months after the bookstore had opened. Uh, he had gotten some nice publicity for the fact that he'd opened this, uh, this specialty store. There was really nothing else in the country like it at the time. And one day, uh, a car pulled up in front, and Julia and Paul Child got out. And Nock was sort of dumbfounded because I don't believe he'd ever met her before. And she came in, um, walked in enthusiastic and bubbly and her distinctive sort of high piping, uh, wonderful voice. Um, and she said, where are the French books? And Nock pointed to the section of shelves and she walked over, kicked off her shoes, sat down on the floor and proceeded to pull every one of them off the shelf. <laughs> and she was there for, I think, several hours going through them. Uh, he had, Nock had already begun importing some books from France, so she was enthralled to find uh, the books in, in French. And I think, you know, in, in the United States, she had never come across uh, so many French books in a single place. And of course, you know, mastering the art was there. Um, but there were just, it was a revelation to see how much 
had happened. It sort of it crystallized in a way that was not possible to see anywhere else in the country how um, how rich a tradition of of books on French cooking had followed hers. Um, over the years, uh, she continued to come to the store, but she'd stopped by the time I uh, I came to work for the store. So I never I never met herself. I had the pleasure of answering the phone a few times and asking her. Uh, she would ask to speak to Knock, um, but that you know, I've I've always liked the idea of her curled up on the floor with her feet tucked under her and her shoes off to the side while she lost herself in the books. Well, I think by definition, that is a perfect Julia moment. And I love connecting that to your descriptions of this, um, the book about Mexican markets you were talking about, Mercado, and also the the the, the pizza geek book on in Neapolitan pizza making. And I, I, I love that, that full circle story. I think it's really um, completing. So thank you very much. And thank you for joining us. Delighted. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to have done this. Well, uh, our pleasure. I'm really glad we could share all this knowledge and put Kitchen Arts and Letters on people's radar if it's not already there, either for the web or if they're visiting New York. So thank you, Matt. And thanks to everyone for listening. You can remember to follow us on social. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram. And it's at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. As I was saying, you can find Kitchen Arts and Letters in the physical world at 1435 Lexington Avenue between 93rd and 94th Street in New York City or around the world online at kitchenartsandletters.com. And on social, it's at K-A-L-N-Y-C on Twitter and Instagram and Kitchen Arts and Letters, all one word, on Facebook. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. And thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review. It really helps listeners discover the show. We could use some new ones, so please give it a think after listening to episode 50. We are on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcast, We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>